Welcome to The Queerness, an LGBTQ podcast produced by San Francisco Pride from our studios overlooking the most beautiful city in the galaxy. I'm your host, Peter Astrid Kane, and I use they, them pronouns. I'm SF Pride's communications person. In this month's episode, we have the honor of sitting down with none other than Michelle Miao, producer and host of the Michelle Miao radio show at the Commonwealth Club and a former president of SF Pride's board of directors. Her involvement with this organization goes way back. Starting in 2006, Michelle was actually the co-host of the Pride Parade itself. She's also co-hosted benefits like fundraisers for Positive Resource Center, an organization that provides services to people living with HIV AIDS, and events at the Oakland Symphony, which called her a hip and funny lesbian version of Anderson Cooper without the gray hair. And she does all this because she's not merely a radio personality, but a television host as well. Now, in the interests of full disclosure, Michelle and I have worked together before, namely on a series of four moderated panel discussions last year at the Commonwealth Club called Lavender Talks that Michelle was heavily involved with and which featured legendary LGBTQ activist Ken Jones's final appearance at a Pride-related event before his death this winter. That was a fun project, but it's been a while, so I'm very glad to welcome her to The Queerness. Michelle, hello. Thank you for being here. I love it. The Queerness. I feel like, I mean, I, I already know that I'm super queer, but I feel even more queer today. You feel you feel 5% queer just already? <laughs> yeah. You ready to dial it up to 10, maybe 15? Let's, let's reach. Oh, yeah. Let's go to the very top. I mean, is there even a cap at how queer you can be? No, I think it's an open-ended scale, like the tornado <laughs> scale or, um, yeah, it's, let's just see. Let's see what we can do here. Uh, normally, normally, I start by asking people, to tell us a little bit about their history with San Francisco Pride. But um, your tenure coincided with some, you know, let's say tumult. So I'm kind of afraid that question might take all afternoon, but I'm going to chance it. How would you characterize your long involvement with this organization? You know, I have uh, so much love and passion for the Pride movement. And uh, I mean, I came to San Francisco to go to college, but I think to be honest with you, it was to come out like most LGBTQ people who come to San Francisco. And Pride was kind of the very first open community, open space that I could be myself, but also see other people. And so I just feel like ever since I was, I don't know what the word is when you come out and you're born again, you know, it's not like born again, Christian, born again. A better kind though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, it's it, pride has always been there for me, and so it was a natural evolution. Uh, I was a curious LGBTQ young person, and when I stumbled upon the opportunity to be a part of the broadcast and the webcast of the Pride Parade, it only made sense then to be involved with the organization formally. And so I was recruited by Gary Virginia, who's a former board president, um, and you know he stepped in at a very interesting time. It was during this time where. A lot of community members form some kind of advisory committee or an external committee to basically, I don't want to say takeover, but that kind of was what it was. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, it, you know, cyclically, that, that probably has happened a few yeah. times. And, and it was over the you know Grand Marshal situation with Chelsea Manning and giving the Grand Marshal title to Chelsea Manning and rescinding it. And so I felt like it was a calling. It was an honor to have been recruited from Gary Virginia and Marshall Levine, who have long history at the organization. Oh, yeah. So quickly got onto the board and then within a year or so later uh, served as board president for four years. 
And I really feel like it was a very special time. Many people who served with me at the time might not describe it as special because it was certainly challenging. As I've said over and over and over, that was during the time that we were fighting these lawsuits with regards to San Francisco Pride. But I'm glad that I was there. I'm glad I got through it. And I'm glad I got to serve alongside someone like George Ridgely, who was the executive director at the time. And I feel pretty lucky that I continue to be a part of Pride in different ways, but especially the Pride Parade broadcast. Hopefully, right, the parade happens next year and we bring it back. Yes, yes. Wait, so just to be clear, was San Francisco Pride your first Pride ever? Ever. And yes. do, do you mind revealing what year was that, that you attended for the first time as a baby, baby diaper? <laughs> that was 2000. 2000. So six years later, <clears throat> you were co-hosting the parade. And then another eight years after that, seven years after that, you were the president. So it only took you 13 years to go from curious onlooker to boss lady. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, when you put it that way, I get goosebumps. Like, yeah, but that's impressive. You know. <laughs> yeah, you should. <laughs> you know, it's just so important no matter what, no matter how we feel about pride, right? Like that it should be this or it should be that. No answer is a wrong answer. You're right. Pride should be everything that you want it to be. And it can, as long as you're a part of that conversation. And so I never, ever feel like, you know, we shouldn't have pride anymore or that we couldn't throw the first pride in any other city. Because imagine how many curious onlookers or people who are just coming out just like myself who really, really, really need that space. I think we're just always going to have to do it. I I agree. I mean, I remember my first pride. It was also um, 2000, actually, but it was New York City. And I just remember like being so scared I mean, this is New York, right? It's like not, it wasn't, you know, Tulsa. And it was just like terrifying. But I just, you just think about like, there's always going to be somebody. And sometimes it's people later in life, right? It's not children or students. Like that's a special moment. I mean, that cannot be taken away from future generations ever. So yes, I I agree with your beautiful wording. And uh, I do want to ask you though, did you ever, have you ever met or interviewed Chelsea Manning, whether in in your career as a journalist or through Pride? Never met, but did interview. And how did that go? You know, Chelsea is an incredibly intelligent, obviously, and articulate person. And I think a great voice for many of us who are seeking, who are seeking the truth and being able to really talk about the freedom to do so, which is the core value of being an American. I think for a lot of us who fight for progressive values, understand that. I think many more of us in our community can do a better job in seeking the truth, especially after this previous administration. So, yeah, it was quite an honor. You know, I'm glad that I, or I'm very excited, very happy to be able to claim that. Her willingness to go back to prison to stand up for her beliefs is actually like almost fearsome like her determination to be like no you think you can scare me like i already did this once before and if i have to do it again i will do that it's just like oh whoa like no matter how courageous i think i've ever been in my life i don't think i i have a tenth of the courage of chelsea manning i find that that is a common virtue with many trans non-conforming non-binary folks in our community in the decade that i've interviewed so many of us in our community Um, That's what I find. And I think that it has a lot to do with being rejected by society, being oppressed, being so uh, beaten up 
and open to all these violent and oppressive situations that you really have this attitude of you have, you've got nothing to lose. Yeah. And so when you're fighting for justice, you really have to go that mile, not just for you know the injustices to yourself, but to your entire community. You are describing Chelsea Manning, but you also could be describing Sylvia Rivera or Marsha mm-hmm. P. Johnson. Exactly. Yeah. Um, on on this topic, you I mean you've interviewed some incredible people. You've spoken to Margaret Cho and Chaz Bono and Gavin Newsom. I don't know what office he held at the time, but maybe he was supervisor, maybe he was governor. Uh, you've talked to you know Wrecking Ball Coffee's incredible Korean dad. Nick Cho, um, former NCLR director Kate Kendall, Sarah Palin for some reason. Uh, who's your, who's your dream interview? <laughs> oh my god, the, the Sarah Palin story. I went, we, Come we, on, <laughs> what, what happened there? I went with a coworker at the time, and we are co-hosts, and we crashed this Republican fundraiser. Gosh, what hotel was it? It's right near SFO. And I don't know what lie we came up with. We said we were with some family values organization or, oh, I know what it was. We said we were with a conservative radio station. And so we got in there and we were talking to her. We went in there with what they called a Marantz recorder. And it's this big, heavy uh, recording device and radio at the time. Now you can walk up and record on your iPhone. Anyway, and so we stuck a mic in her face and we, we were asking all the right questions. Then we asked the big question, which was about you know, gay people and gay marriage. And all of a sudden, a ton of security guards like swarmed us, and we got kicked out. But you know, we drove away. My co host at the time was this very wealthy real estate lesbian woman. Um, so she had this really cool golden Mercedes Benz convertible, which <laughs> I think that was probably honestly why people didn't think anything of it. Uh, but anyway, we blew our cover. They kicked us out. That's the story of Sarah Palin, but my dream. <laughs> satisfying though. That's satisfying. Yeah. Gosh, my dream interview. There's so many people I would love, love, love to talk to. I get asked this question a lot and it's always so hard. But let me, let me put it this way. Like, do you, there are people who I have thought of as like heroes of mine and I've had the chance to talk to a couple of them and you know, the like axiom, like don't, don't meet your heroes. Like I would say 50% of the time that that is true. And the other 50%, it's everything you could want it to be and more. So is there somebody that you, you know, really love and respect that you're nervous? Like maybe, maybe you'll never have the opportunity to interview them, but if it came along, you'd be like, Ooh, I think we'll Nas. Yeah. And it, and the reason why is because, you know, I find young queer people to be so fierce these days. And I, I never had that kind of, you know, courage or was ever brave to just be it, do it. And I mean, they've got cameras in their faces, they've got their iPhones and, and all this technology. And so it almost feels like they're born into it. And I really uh, appreciate that part of our community that just, you know, they're just being themselves. But I would be so nervous because I feel like someone like Lil Nas has what I've been looking for in people that I've interviewed in over a decade when it comes to talking about religion, spirituality, being LGBTQ, and saying things to oppose these fundamental extremists who yeah. have won arguments about our entire being for so long. And so anyway, I really look up to Lil Nas and then, you know, add on top of it all, um, Lil Nas is just killing it as a black queer performer. Killing it. I mean, twenty like when you and I were going to our first Pride parades, we had like rent 
was the, pretty much the the edgiest, coolest like example of queer representation and culture. And I don't want to like shit talk it, but that is not really my thing. So I'm glad <laughs> that Lil Nas is out there and I agree, killing it. It would be sick if we could get him for Pride 2022, but maybe he will be um, famous on an intergalactic basis. So maybe that would be hard. I don't know, but, you know, we can dream. Um, with respect to, to journalism, though, like what, where where are your irons in the fire these days? Radio show, TV show, like what, what's filling your time? Oh, gosh. Thank you for asking that question. I've spent the last four weeks diving into this new project that we're about to launch, and it's called Interpod. It's a new podcast by Interpride, which is an organization, formerly a nonprofit of pride organizers around the world. And I think there are over 600 and counting at this moment. And so that episode is dropping tomorrow and it's focused on world pride, the history of world pride, but also where world pride is at. Uh, and I learned so much you know, in speaking to someone like Ima Battaglia, who was uh, who was one of the first Pride organizers for World Pride in Rome at the time. And that was during the time when they had a very conservative pope. So mm -hmm. very different from Pope Francis today, but the pope at that time was John Paul II, mm -hmm. who did address the entire, you know, church followers and Rome and the Vatican and everybody around the world in, you know, saying that homosexuality is not part of natural law and denounce world pride. And then here we are in year 2021 with a brand new Pope. He's a little bit more progressive, but we're recovering from a pandemic. And you can just hear from our pride community that we're all just really doing the best that we can. Yeah. Inner pride, I think of as kind of like an LGBTQ UN. Is that, is that a fair <laughs> assessment? Yeah, they do an annual conference where they bring all the Pride organizers together. And the goal is, one, network, two, to learn from each other and hopefully, you know, go out there and mentor, nurture other Pride organizers. Because like we mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, the importance of having Pride is still there. But yeah, so I'm excited for that project. And then, you know, continuing my local television show with KBCW and some talks on maybe expanding that to other parts of the country, which <laughs> I've never, ever, ever dreamt that I would be here. But mm -hmm. if it did happen, like that would be a dream come true. In in your time with World Pride and Inner Pride, have you met activists from a place where, you know, they're trying to put on a pride parade, but they're, you know, either the police are actively beating them or there's like they're dramatically outnumbered by, you know, religious zealots and or outright fascists. Like, have you have you worked with anybody like that? And oh yeah, you know, last year when the world shut down, we produced Global Pride. It was supposed to be a 24-hour live virtual experience, but it ended up being 28 hours because we had so much content submitted by these activists and Pride organizers around the world. And you could quickly see what the developed and progressive nations were doing when it came to pride. And then you get to places like Poland, Hungary, Egypt, and, and, and they couldn't even show their faces. Uh, but the stuff that was coming out of those countries would be stories of perse severe persecution, uh, you know, obviously outright death and targeting of LGBTQIA plus people. 
it makes me incredibly sad. And at the same time, it's like the fire behind wanting to get all these stories out there is just, we just cannot stop no matter what. The pandemic, no, that's not going to stop us. You know, persecution, definitely not going to stop us. And we just have to keep fighting to make sure every single one of us are safe. Yeah, I think a sensitivity to that urgency is a moral imperative in what what we do, right? I mean, mm-hmm. as much as pride is a party and as much as it has that Mardi Gras feel sometimes, like it, it's just always in the back of my mind, like there are millions and millions of LGBTQ people worldwide who, if they just show their face, they're liable to get like a baton cracking their skull open or arrested. I mean, just as with Chelsea Manning, like the bravery is really, really humbling. I want to change subjects on you. And even though, you know, just saying that we are fitfully emerging from the pandemic may be slightly optimistic phrasing, I'm going to go with it. But hopefully we are. And hopefully we are also emerging from a period of increased attacks against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. And I'm wondering if you think that the overall LGBTQ community in the Bay Area has begun to step up for our AAPI sisters, siblings, and brothers? There are so many ways to answer that question. I, I think first and foremost, you know, many of us who are LGBTQIA plus and AAPI have always been there, right? Have always had these experiences of racism as well as um, experiences of homophobia, transphobia, and have been fighting these fights. And Unfortunately, in your 2021-2022 uh, pandemic in which a president had pinpointed the origin of this you know, virus and, and scapegoated Asians, we were able to talk more about you know, how racism has affected our communities. But historically speaking, everything else, the model minority myth uh, and also the way AAPI people have been treated. So in, in a lot of ways... I feel like the LGBTQIA plus AAPI and people of color community have always been there and have always been addressing this fight. And we're just really collecting more and more people who are waking up to what's wrong with our society, what's, what's the problem, the root cause of racism. And then in a, in a lot of ways, I feel like there are a whole lot more people that need to wake up. And so hopefully you'll hear the message You'll acknowledge that it's happening. You'll understand the whys when you read about the history and you'll join the fight. One final question for you. Uh, Your wife, Orwan, is a Thai folk singer who performed under the name Tukta and who has played before an audience of more than 100,000 people on Mother's Day for the Queen of Thailand herself. Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say that you're in a lesbian power couple and everyone should watch out? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You know, we live everyday lives like everyday people. Um, I have to pinch myself to, excuse me, to be honest, because sometimes I see videos randomly of fans who are like, where is she now? And they'll post, you know, videos of her concerts. And it's, they've racked up millions of views. And I'm like, oh my gosh, who am I married to? Like, who are you? Because the story is, I met her at a concert. She came to the United States and, you know, she performed and we fell in love like right away. It was love at first sight for sure. And we got married. So there's a lot about her that I still don't know. And so there's a lot about me that she still doesn't know. Um, But in the end, I would not say that we're power couples, but we are definitely 
two special people who really love each other. And we're going on this journey and this ride. And I'm so glad that we got through a pandemic and Donald Trump. And, and that to me is probably true love. <laughs> oh, that is a great note to end on. True love. Michelle, I am happy for you. And I'm really, really happy that we got to have this conversation today. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much. This has been The Queerness, a production of San Francisco Pride, conceived and co-produced by my hardworking colleagues, Chris and RJB, and our much-missed former colleague, Shannon. Our wonderful guest on this episode was Michelle Miao, fantastic AAPI journalist and former SF Pride board president. Without the generous support of our sponsors, none of this would be possible. So a big thank you to T-Mobile, Alaska Airlines, Anheuser-Busch, and Waymo. Our theme music was composed by La Frida. We strongly encourage you to like and subscribe to us, which helps increase the queerness's visibility on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms, because you know we're all about queer visibility around here. I'm your sickening host, Peter Astrid Kane, reminding you to be safe and stay dangerous. We'll see you next time.